On October 31st, 2010, a Sunday afternoon, 911 dispatchers got a call from Lori Morris. She was standing outside of her sister and brother-in-law's house. Her 16-year-old nephew was with her. Her nephew was saying that his parents were dead. I'm Bill Swafford, and this is Murderers in Ohio. Happy Halloween. This is an Halloween episode of Murderers in Ohio. This is a case that has brought up many questions for me. Looking into the case, I can see how it was an open and shut case for the detectives who handled it. I just can't see the motive behind it, and I can't shake the feeling that there is more to this case than what I can find, and more than anyone will ever know. William and Susan Linsky lived in a small country town called Martin, Ohio. Martin, Ohio is in Ottawa County and has a population of less than 2,000 people and has a very low crime rate. Martin, Ohio is in the northwest part of Ohio, just south of Toledo and near Lake Erie. I have to admit that I myself had to look up Martin, Ohio on Google Maps. I have never heard of it. I've been up to Toledo, and I just recently went on a fishing trip up in Sandusky at Lake Erie, but I have never heard of Martin, Ohio. 53-year-old William Linsky and his 46-year-old wife Susan lived out on State Route 2 in Martin, Ohio. Their house was a two-story home that had a one-story addition on the side of it. The house sat by a cornfield, and there was a pole barn on the property. They had a nice little country home. William and Susan both loved the outdoors. They both loved hunting, fishing, and gardening. It's said that William's land was his own personal heaven. William was a United States Air Force veteran. He worked for waste management as a front-end loader operator. Susan worked at the Northwest Ohio Carpenters Joint Apprenticeship and Training Committee. She was known for her big heart and for being a loving mother and aunt. William and Susan both had previous marriages, and they both had kids from those previous marriages. Susan had two sons. One was Derek, age 23 at this time, and Devon, who was at the age of 16 at this time. Devon was the only kid who was still a minor and lived with William and Susan. William had a son who also bared his name, William Linsky. He was 24 years old at this time. People who knew him called him BJ. BJ lived in something like a halfway house in Sandusky, Ohio. He'd sometime visit and stay on the weekends at William's and Susan's house. B.J. looked like any average 24-year-old with dirty blonde hair. B.J. had been known to move around a lot. On Saturday, October 30th, B.J. and Derek was at Williams and Susan's house. I seen a news video and it said that it is unclear why B.J. and Derek was there. The news reporter went on to say that the Linsky family was maybe having a family gathering or a Halloween party. I myself don't see the get-together as a family gathering. 
How is it a family gathering when the whole family wasn't there? 16-year-old Devon was staying at his biological dad's house. There was an article that I read which gave a reason for 16-year-old Devon not being there. I don't know how much truth is in it, but I think it is worth mentioning. It was said that BJ and Devon didn't get along and that Devon went to his dad's house to avoid being around BJ. I don't know how much of this is true, but I will later explain why I feel it was worth mentioning. And I could see there being some tension. I mean, that happens with a lot of families who get remarried. You know, there are times when the siblings don't get along. There's times when one of the kids don't get along with one of the parents. But that happens when people get remarried and bring in kids from their past marriages. It happens all the time. William and BJ had a few drinks on Saturday evening. BJ stayed the night at Williams and Susan's house. It is also said that William and his son BJ had plans to go out hunting the following morning. On Sunday, October 31st, Devon had come home, but only for a short moment. Devon was going to go to church and he wanted to change his clothes. Devon only noticed his stepbrother BJ at the house while he was there. Devon noticed BJ putting stuff in a family's Ford truck. Devon left the house after getting changed and had gone to church. That Sunday afternoon, Devon had returned home from church. Now, I couldn't find anything on whether Devon drove himself or was dropped off by somebody. When I was a kid, my brother and sister and myself went to spend Saturday nights at our grandma's house and then go to church on Sunday morning. Our parents weren't the church type. I bring that up because when I first read about Devon going to church and coming home, I asked myself, why didn't the rest of the family go? I'm sure law enforcement knows who Devon had gone to church with. One thing I find hard about looking into cases that are old cases is going through all the unnecessary bullcrap. When Devon got home from church, he did notice that the family's Ford truck was gone, the same truck that Devon had seen BJ putting stuff in earlier when he had gone home to change his clothes before church. Devon apparently didn't think too much about the truck being gone. He might have known about the possible hunting trip between William and BJ. Devon had gone inside the house. The other vehicles of the family was at the house. It is said that Devon had gone to his bedroom and played video games. After a while of playing video games, Devon was noticing how strangely quiet the house was, considering all the family's vehicles were outside except for the truck. Okay, this brings up a question for me, and this question may come from how I was brought up, and when I was at that young age and had gone somewhere, no matter where it was, my parents always wanted to know when I got home. So, was there any text messages or anything that Derek had tried to send to his parents? Did he not yell or anything and say, hey, I'm home, as he was walking through the door? For me, this is the question, like I said, it was maybe because how I was brought up. 
I don't know. So after a while of not hearing any movement in the house, Devon stopped playing his video games and had left his room to see if anyone else was at home. Devon had made his way into Williams and Susan's bedroom, but he didn't get far. Devon walked into a horrifying scene. Devon seen a lot of blood. Devon's first thought it was a family prank. A Halloween prank, because this is Halloween after all. After there was no movement from what appeared to be his parents in the bed, Devon started to realize it wasn't a prank and something was horribly wrong. Devon had took off running out of the house. Lori Morris received a phone call from her nephew. Her nephew said there was something wrong. There was a lot of blood. Lori who at that point drove over to the Liskey home out on State Route 2. Around 2 in the afternoon, 911 received a call from Lori Morris. Lori was outside of her sister's home with her nephew, Devon. Lori told the 911 operator that they needed an ambulance and a sheriff to come out to the house. Lori told the 911 operator that her nephew was saying, that there was a lot of blood in his parents' bedroom and that she hadn't been in the house at this time. I listened to this 911 call and while on the phone with 911, Lori had gone into the house and had gone into the Linsky bedroom and that's when she discovered the body of William Linsky. This 911 call has raised some questions with me. First question I have is about who called 911. Why didn't Devon call 911 before calling his aunt? I can understand someone being in shock after seeing a horrible scene. But he had enough sense to call someone, and that someone happened to be his aunt. My second question about this 911 call is, why didn't the 911 operator tell Lori not to enter the house until law enforcement got there? Lori had entered a crime scene. I believe that the 911 operator should have advised Lori to stay out of the house for two reasons. Lori should have stayed out of the house, that way the crime scene wouldn't be compromised, and for her safety. At this time, no one knew whether or not someone else was still inside the house or might have come back. County law enforcement had gone out to the Linsky home and once inside the Linsky home, they discovered a horrifying scene. Law enforcement found William and Susan in their bed, and they had been murdered. They both had serious trauma to their heads. Law enforcement couldn't tell what had caused the trauma. While searching the Linsky home, law enforcement came upon a locked bedroom. After making entry to the bedroom, they discovered the body of 23-year-old Derek. He was curled up in bed against the wall and had serious trauma to his head. But like William and Susan, what caused the trauma was unclear at this time. Law enforcement knew that they were dealing with a triple homicide and they already had a person of interest. When the story of what happened to the Linskys hit the news channel, they were saying at first on Sunday before any real information had been released, that a family member had stopped by just to use a computer. When that family member noticed that the house was quiet and that all the family's vehicles were there, 
that's when they realized that something was wrong. News reporters did say that law enforcement did have a person that they suspected committed this triple homicide and that that person who was suspected of committing this crime was a family member. Law enforcement already had a name of a suspect before they even showed up at the Linsky home. Law enforcement had gotten the name of their suspect from the 911 call. While on the phone with 911, and after Lori had discovered William's body, Lori had given the 911 operator a name, B.J. Linsky. Lori had told the operator that there had been serious problems between B.J. and his parents. B.J. Linsky was a name that law enforcement was familiar with. Law enforcement went on a hunt for B.J. Linsky, and they figured that B.J. was in the Linsky's truck. They had a couple of ideals where B.J. could have been heading to. When investigating the rest of the house, law enforcement did find a claw hammer that had blood on it, and it was in the bedroom where Derek's body was found. Law enforcement discovered muddy footprints that had led out of the house and out to the pond. That Sunday evening on October 31st, 2010, law enforcement tracked BJ down at a family cabin in Carroll County. Carroll County is basically in the northeast part of Ohio. When I looked at Carroll County on Google's map using a satellite image, I see a lot of wooded area and country roads. The cabin was owned by William Linsky, and officers were sent to the cabin and a few other places that B.J. would have been known to go. Law enforcement's search for B.J. ended at the cabin when they found him in the truck there. B.J. was arrested at the cabin. Law enforcement noticed bloodstains on his shoes. They also found a cell phone and wallet that belonged to William Linsky. Law enforcement had B.J. Linsky in custody, but they couldn't just take him back to Ottawa County. B.J. was arrested in Carroll County, which meant B.J. went to Carroll County Jail. Now this is something new to me, this law right here, because I thought extradition was just from like state to state. I didn't know that counties had to deal with extradition from, you know, taking a prisoner from one county to another. I didn't know there was extradition laws. I just thought the extradition laws from, from one, you know, one state to another. So that was a new thing for me. I learned something new on that. This is a big deal for Ottawa County and the community of Martin, Ohio. Remember, we are talking about a community with a very low crime rate. This is only the second homicide in that decade. The sheriff said that within 19 years of his service that this was the first triple homicide that he had ever seen. Law enforcement in the community had a lot of questions and they needed answers. I can understand where they would have a lot of questions. I'm sitting here 11 years later and still have a lot of questions. Law enforcement continued their investigation into B.J. Linsky and what happened to his family. When looking into B.J. Linsky, they didn't have to go too far. They had plenty of files of their own on B.J. Linsky. Law enforcement had been called to the Linsky home on quite a few occasions. One notable one happened back in 2004. B.J. Linsky was charged with assault and robbery. 
BJ was arrested for hitting his stepmom Susan with a coffee cup and stealing her keys. BJ had pled not guilty to this by the reason of insanity. The state eventually dropped the charges. William and Susan had informed law enforcement and family that BJ had serious mental issues and could get violent. There were times that William and Susan were scared for their lives because of their son BJ. People did know about BJ's mental illness. It is noted that his father, William, did try to get his son some help. BJ had been in some, some institutions for people with mental illnesses, and BJ was on medication. Some say that William had been worried that his son BJ had stopped taking his medication. Law enforcement had a witness to some of the aspects of the crime but no one actually seen the murders. A neighbor had told law enforcement that they had heard what they thought were gunshots around 6.30 in the morning. And out in the country, you're going to hear gunshots from time to time. I mean, out in the country, especially in October, you're going to have hunters. You're going to have people out there just shooting for targets. So when somebody lives out in the country and they hear a gun go off early in the morning during hunting season, they're not going to think too much of it. After the coroner did the autopsy on the Liskey family, law enforcement knew that Derek was beaten to death with both sides of the claw hammer that had been found in the house. William and Susan suffered gunshot wounds to the head by a 22 caliber firearm. They also found evidence that Susan had been raped, but unsure if the rape occurred before or after her death. So law enforcement knew that there was a 22 caliber gun that was used on William and Susan, but they did not have a gun. This takes us back to the muddy footprints that were found in the house and that led out to the pond. Police thought that the firearm might have been thrown into the pond and they actually drained the pond looking for this firearm, but unfortunately, they did not find anything. Law enforcement did determine that Derek was the first to be murdered. DNA evidence would soon reveal that BJ did rape his stepmom, Susan. Now, law enforcement had to get BJ from Carroll County and bring him back to Ottawa County. This ended up being pretty easy. B.J. Linsky went to court in Carroll County, and he waived his right to an extradition hearing, and he was soon extradited back to Ottawa County. And that's where B.J. sat in the county jail, waiting for his day in court. Now, I want to bring up one little thing that I found. And it said that when B.J. was first in custody in the county jail, he was being transported from a holding cell to a receiving cell. BJ was told to undress and to put on a suicide prevention smock, but BJ refused. When a deputy went for BJ's shirt, BJ punched the deputy in the jaw and scratched the deputy's face. And that's when another deputy come in to help out. One thing that detectives still had to figure out was what set all this off? Did BJ just snap and just go crazy? I mean, what pushed this 24-year-old 
to do this to his father, his stepmom, his stepbrother. Prosecutors say that this was premeditated and that BJ planned it all out. So to me that takes out the theory that he just snapped and went crazy. So what motivated BJ to plan all of this out? In my mind, there's nothing that could justify even thinking about doing something this horrifying to your own family. I mean, we all have family members that we don't like and stuff like that, but we don't think about going and doing something this horrifying. And that's my biggest question so far, but we'll keep moving on. B.J. Linsky at first was only charged with one count of murder, even though he was accused of three. At a bond hearing, it just set B.J.'s bond at $1 million. I'm surprised that he even got a bond at all. I mean, he already proven that he was a flight risk. And this brings another question up for myself, and that's about where he had gone to, and that's the cabin. And if this was premeditated and planned out, I mean, surely he would have knew that people would have gone looking at the cabin for him and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's hard for me to see the motivation, the thought process that someone would put into something like this. And when I heard this, this also brought up the question for me about why did he only get charged for one count of murder when he was being accused of murdering all three. And BJ was only charged with one murder at first to give the grand jury time to look at evidence for the whole triple murder in the whole. That way they can make sure that they had all their stuff straight before they fully charged him with this triple homicide. Like I said, this is a case that this county normally doesn't handle. So they want to make sure that they got all their ducks in a row before they go into this. Detectives determined that BJ had shot his parents around 6.30 in the morning on Sunday. They think Derek was the first victim, so BJ was in... The bedroom was there maybe between 6 and 6.30, and possibly maybe between 5.30 and 6. This means that when Devon had come home to change his clothes before church, and when he had noticed BJ loading things in the family forward, that his mom and stepdad and brother were already dead. So what saved Devon's life? This brings me back to the article that I mentioned that said that Devon was staying with his biological dad so he wouldn't have to be around BJ. Was it the fact that when Devon had come home to change for church that somebody had driven him there and somebody was waiting for him outside of the house and somebody else had witnessed BJ loading up stuff into the truck? And why didn't BJ try to stop his stepbrother from going inside? Ottawa County did end up charging BJ Linsky with three counts of murder. And the death penalty was put on the table. A judge ruled that an evaluation would be done on BJ. And BJ was found mentally able to stand trial for the murders of his family. 
While in custody and waiting trial, BJ did end up screwing himself. And this, this right here really amazes me. There was a phone call between BJ and his biological mom. And we all know by now that phone calls are recorded in all correctional institutions. And some of us who haven't been to correctional institutions, county jails, prison, whatever, may not know this. But if you're listening to me now, know this, that all calls in any correctional institution are recorded, no matter where you are, what state you live in. Now, a phone call was recorded between BJ and his mom. And in this call, BJ's mom read an article about what happened to the Linsky family to her son over the telephone. Then she asked her son if he had done it. And BJ simply answered with one word, yes. This just blew my mind away, just like the rest of this case has. Maybe just a little bit more. Seriously, you're going to admit to a horrible crime like this on a recorded phone call from a county jail to your mom? You gotta be crazy. B.J. Linsky ended up pleading guilty to the three counts of aggravated murder, which took the death penalty off the table. And after his phone conversation with his mom, he didn't really have any other choice. If he would have went to trial, it would have been the death penalty. It is said that before sentencing, that BJ did apologize for what he did. He blamed it on his mental illness and Satan. And that right there made me think when he said Satan. Could he have possibly thought that he was hearing voices inside of his head? I'm still left with a lot of questions about this. I know this was basically an open and shut case. You know, they had all the evidence pointed to B.J. Linsky. But I still have questions. And I'm still unclear with the reasoning with the rape of his stepmom. There was a lot of tension between the two. Was this rape a way for B.J. to feel like he had control and power over his stepmom? I don't understand why he did that given the issues between the two of them. I also have asked myself, why did B.J. take his dad's phone? Did B.J. not have his own cell phone? Was there something on this phone that B.J. didn't want other people to see? Maybe a text between B.J. and his father that maybe had some bad words and some threats and things like that in it? And this bugs me, and this brings me back to what I said earlier about it's hard to find real solid information about cases that are old because there's so much other stuff that's just piles up on top of them and you know in your search and weeding through all the bullcrap just to get good information can get frustrating after a while and i'm still left with one final question that has bugged me this whole time and i still want an answer for that is what set this 
off? Was there a fight? Was there an argument the night before? Had there been an argument a week before? I mean, what was the real motive behind even planning something like this out? Where did the motivation to take this plan and bring it into reality come from? If B.J. Linsky is the only one with the true answer, then we will never know. At the age of 29, William B.J. Linsky was found dead in his prison cell at Ross Correctional Institution in Chillicothe, Ohio. He was found with a self-inflicted wound. Was this suicide over the guilt over what he had done to his family? I mean... If he was mentally able to stand trial for what he'd done, that means that there's some normalcy in him. Did he finally start feeling that guilt, that horrible, horrible guilt that a person would have to feel when they have done something like this? Or was it done from a person that just didn't want to spend the rest of their life in prison? If you have liked what you have heard, please subscribe to Murderers on Ohio. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. There are a couple of things I want to say before ending this episode. While searching for the information on this case, I've seen titles for video podcasts, which I have not watched. I just noticed the titles. The titles are A Halloween Prank Gone Wrong. And this bothers me. And my problem with this is that this was in no way a prank that just went bad. This wasn't a family who was trying to pull a Halloween prank and it just went wrong. This was a horrible crime. The only time media mentioned a prank was when Devon first found his parents. So I think that it's misleading to make people think that this all started from a Halloween prank that the family were all into together. Now, if you deal with somebody with a mental illness and gets violent, please don't go through this alone. Please find you some help. And lastly, make sure to stay safe while out doing your Halloween activity. Please check out Guns or Mental Health. It's an ebook on barnesandnobles.com by William Swafford. Guns or Mental Health talks about the mental health privacy issues when it comes to when people can buy guns and background checks. So please, Go to barnesandnobles.com, check out Guns or Mental Health by William Swafford. And please subscribe to Murderers in Ohio, like and share the episodes that you like, and help us get out there. This podcast and music was put together and performed by William Swafford. <laughs>